Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel, and I invite your attention now to verse 37. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43 is our text this morning. Last week we literally had a mountaintop experience. We studied, as you recall, Luke's account of our Lord's transfiguration. There up on the mountainside, Jesus allowed his inner circle of apostles to see a momentary glimpse of his heavenly glory. And Peter, per usual, did the talking for all of them, and he says, Lord, it's good to be here. In fact, it was so good to be there that Peter suggested that they just stay. He said, let's build some shelters and stay on the mountain. But as most of you know, life is not lived altogether up on the mountain, but down in the valley. The cross awaited Jesus down in the valley. The crowds of people who were sick and demon-possessed, needed to be healed, were down in the valley. The wandering sheep of Israel were in the valley. And we said last week that the Lord is sometimes gracious. Let me say He's always gracious, but He's sometimes especially gracious. Gives us a little preview of heaven here on earth. I think he does that to encourage us to keep going. But most of life is not lived and ministry certainly is not done by sight, but rather by faith. I noticed in this morning's bulletin that our student choir tour this summer is called Walking by Faith. That, of course, taken from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. What does it mean to walk by faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Things hoped for mean things that are yet to happen, that we believe will happen. And the things not seen means those things that the Lord says are true, but we can't see them with our physical eyes. For example, most of us have never seen the transfigured body of Jesus, yet we believe. We walk by faith and not by sight. When we talk about faith, what we mean is we believe that what God has said and what God has promised is so. It's true. This week, uh, our second bus tour to the Ark Museum returned home with our senior adults and to a person they all agreed something that everyone should see. I've often thought about the faith of Noah, who though he had never seen rain before, was told by God that all the earth was going to get swept away in a great flood, and he spent over 100 years preparing for that moment. In fact, the whole book of Genesis, the creation account, is taken by faith that God spoke the word and the worlds spun into their orbits. Now, it is a reasonable faith. There's plenty of evidence that what the Bible says is true, but it is still faith and not sight. And that is true of the greatest gift of God, which is our own salvation. Jesus' atoning death, His physical burial, His glorious resurrection, His ascension into heaven, and His imminent second coming, all of that is taken by faith by believers. And yet, faith is real. It's faith 
that the things we hope for will happen, the things that we have not seen, we one day will. But the truth is, our faith sometimes wavers, and it is far from perfect. That was true of the apostles. They often tried the patience of the Lord Jesus by their faithlessness. So let's read about one of those episodes today. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 through 43. Scripture says, on the next day, that is the day after the transfiguration event, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word and its hearing. Now here we have the setting. They have come down from the mountain. As I said in the introduction, we can't stay on the mountain. There's life to live. And the needs are ever present. It says a large crowd met him. Now we don't know exactly how many people that is. But we estimate in the thousands because by this point, literally thousands of people were following Jesus everywhere he went. This episode is recorded in three of the four Gospels, and in each one of them, this man cries out above the din of the crowd, Teacher! Lord! He uses several of these expressions of his reverence for who Jesus is. Now, we don't know how much he knew about the Lord, but he knew he was a great teacher, and he knew he was a man worthy of respect, and so he uses these titles. And he gets the Lord's attention. He says, I beg you. Look at my son. Now this is not the Greek word for cast a glance upon my son. It's the word for give special attention to. Now remember there were thousands of people there. All of them presumably had needs of their own. But this man was concerned about his son. Pay special attention to my son. He is my only boy. If you're a parent you understand this. A few years ago... My son, my only son, Andrew, who's now six, was about two years old. And he got a wooden splinter in his toe. And we did all we could to get it out. But uh, sure enough, in the middle of the night, he got a high fever. And we thought it would go down with aspirin, and it did not. And so the next day, we took him to the Care Now, where they ran tests on his blood and determined that his white blood cells were elevated at an extremely high level. And the doctor came out and said, take this boy down town to Children's Hospital and go right now. And so I left from work, met my wife, and we took him down to Children's Hospital. We arrived there a little before 5 p.m. We were one of the first ones there for the evening rush, and we saw a doctor at 3 a.m. And I can't tell you how many times I said during that period of time to one of the nurses, pay attention to my son. Now there were hundreds of other children there, and I loved all of them but not like my son. I wanted them to pay attention to my son, and so this man is in a similar situation. Luke points out that he's his only boy, and it reminds me of several episodes in Jesus' ministry where 
He gave special attention to those who had lost that which was most precious to them. I think of J. Iris' daughter. The scripture says his only daughter, and she died, and Jesus brought her back to life and restored her to her parents. I think of the widow of Nain, who had lost an adult son, presumably, but it was her only son. And he restored her and the boy back together. And here's another episode of that. But this boy had a unique problem, unique in the sense that it was more difficult than anything the apostles had ever seen. He was possessed, the Bible says, by an unclean spirit, a demon. And when you read his symptoms, convulsions and uh, jumping into fires, you may be tempted to call upon your medical knowledge and say, well, this boy has epilepsy or something like that. Well, the Bible says he had a demon. And we believe the Bible, don't we? And since he had a demon, this was a spiritual issue. And the Bible says that the man called upon the disciples and asked them to cast out the demon, and they could not. The other gospel writers give more detail about what sort of demon. It was a demon that was mute, rendered the boy unable to talk. And it would cast him into open flames and try to kill him and cast him into bodies of water and try to drown him. And the dad simply was exhausted, I take it, from trying to keep this lad alive. And so in desperation, he pushes his way to the front and says, I beg you, pay attention to my son. And Jesus says something very surprising. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Now, that may sound cruel in your ears if you think that that sentence was directed towards the father. After all, this man's heartbroken, he's exhausted, and Jesus says, you perverted and unbelieving generation. But he was not addressing this to the father, he was addressing this to his disciples. The ones that had tried to cast out demon and demons and weren't able to. Because once again, these apostles were trying his patience. The Lord is a patient Lord, isn't he? After reading the newspaper over the last couple of weeks, and yet another scandal in our denomination, I commented to a pastor friend that it is a testimony to the Lord's patience that any of us are still here. And so we see the patience of the Lord Jesus on display yet again here in Luke 9. The psalmist rightly said that the Lord is patient. He's slow to anger. He is rich in mercy and he is good to all. But sometimes the apostles tried his patience. The word tried means tested, to push to the limits. You moms understand this, right? When your children try your patience, they push it to the limits. Well, these guys did that. And here, here's what we know. Jesus had given them power. Verse 1 here in chapter 9 says, He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over how many of the demons? All the demons, including presumably the one that was inhabiting this young man, and to heal diseases. Now you need to note right here that it is the great lie of what's called the prosperity gospel, that Jesus has promised every believer unlimited power, an easy life, healthy life, and a full bank account. Jesus has not promised any of those things. Here we have an episode in which he promised his inner circle of disciples, the apostles, the power to cast out diseases and to heal the sick, but it was limited to them. 
Well, not only did they have the power, they also had experience in casting out demons. Scripture says in verse 6 here that departing they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You remember they came back to Jesus excited, telling Him what all they were able to do. But then right as they were in their mind at the height of their ministry, their power, they failed. This man came to them with this boy in desperation and they were unable to help him. Scriptures tell us that uh, after Jesus had cast the demon out of this young man, the disciples came to him privately and asked him pointedly, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Here is the root problem with his apostles, the littleness of their faith. We often fail because of the littleness of our faith. We fail to believe what God has said in His Word is true. And as I thought about that this week, it really hit me that every time I sin, what really is happening is that I'm showing the littleness of my faith. Because God has said in His Word that obedience is better than disobedience. And every time I sin, I disobey God. And I'm saying with my actions that I don't believe God, that I don't have faith. I'll give you a few examples how this plays itself out in our life. We all know the Bible says, Thou shalt not lie. We know that truth is better than lies, and yet, when sometimes we're dishonest. We know that trusting the Lord is better than taking our own revenge, but sometimes we do. We know that marriage is better than fornication, and yet we live in a society that has rampant sexual immorality. We know that sobriety is better than drunkenness, and yet we live in a country that is plagued by addiction. What we're saying in effect is, God, we don't believe you. And every time we do, we're testing his patience. Now, thankfully, in this case, and in every case, his patience was proven. That's our second point. Proven patience. Jesus says to the man, bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Here again we find the character of Jesus. His kindness and his patience on display. Just as he restored Jairus' daughter and gave her back to her parents. Just as he restored the centurion's servant. Just as he raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. Jesus restores this young man back to his right mind and back into relationship with his father. And we can't help but notice that's what happens through salvation. Through Jesus shed blood on the cross, through his imparted and imputed righteousness, he not only heals us spiritually, makes us whole, he restores the broken relationship between ourselves and the heavenly father. And he makes whole again that which was broken part. And after he does, you see a couple of things happen. First of all, 
the people were amazed at the greatness of God. Friends, that ought to always be the case when we talk about and we observe the work of God, that He gets the glory. They weren't amazed at anything but the greatness of God. And then the second thing that happens is that he's, He turns His attention back to the apostles. There's, there's a sort of a bracket here, a parenthesis, if you will. He says to the apostles, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long am I going to have to put up with you? And then he says to the dad, bring your son here, and he heals him. And then he turns his attention directly right back to the apostles and says to them. Now, a couple of comments I want to make here. Are you not glad that Jesus is patient with you? I certainly am glad that Jesus is patient. The second thing that brings to mind is that as believers who have been the beneficiaries of God's patience, we don't have the right to impatience with other people. Wednesday evenings in this room we've been going through the model prayer. This week we talked about forgiveness. Jesus said, pray like this. Father, forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. Sin is is termed in in terms of a debt we owe God. And every time we sin, we accrue more debt. God is gracious and forgiving and merciful, and He forgives our debt. And so I said, we don't have the right to be unforgiving to other people who have wronged us because of the great forgiveness we have received through Christ. And in a similar way, Christians don't have the right to be impatient with other Christians or even lost people because of the patience that is shown to us every day. And speaking of patience, we we talk a lot about sanctification in this church. Sanctification, simply put, is the process over our lifetime in which God separates us from sin and sinful habits and makes us and conforms us to the image of His Son. That is, He makes us mature and more like Jesus. And if patience is a characteristic of Christ, and I think we all agree it is, then it stands to reason that God wants us, His children, to have that same characteristic of patience. And I know that's true because of what the Bible says. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul is speaking of Christian progress and sanctification, and he does so with the image of spiritual fruit. He says, that is, the the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he begins to list some characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. Now if you look at those words in this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all those are are the characteristics of Jesus Christ. This is a description of Christ-likeness. And so if you are making progress in these areas... If you're more loving than you used to be, you have more joy than you used to have, you're more peaceful, you're more patient, you're kinder, 
Your life is headed in the trajectory of practical righteousness. You are full of faith and you're gentle with other people and your life is marked by self-control across the board, you have great assurance of salvation because you are making progress in sanctification. You are producing, or God is producing through you, His fruit. Now, let's talk specifically now about this word patience. I have been warned by many pastors not to pray for patience because God will give it. And what they mean by that is um, what James, the brother of the Lord Jesus said in chapter one of his epistle. He says, my brothers count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or different kinds of temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect, that is mature and entire, wanting nothing. So, all of us agree that at the moment of conversion, the Lord forgives us of our sin, and He declares us not guilty. We call that justification, right? That happens in a moment. It is a forensic or legal declaration from a judge. From that moment on, through study of the Word, through Christian fellowship, through prayer, and the Christian disciplines, we began to grow in maturity more and more like Jesus. Now, it is not a, a steady up and to the right sort of curve. For most of it, there's hills and valleys, ups and downs. But as we look back, the trajectory of a true believer is towards righteousness. It is towards sanctification. And the benchmarks of growth are found in Galatians 5. And one of those is how we're doing in the area of patience. Now, the truth is most of us want the growth without the pain. But what is equally true, according to James and other passages of Scripture, is that patience is learned through affliction. Now, we... Here in the Western world, particularly in Northeast Tarrant County, and I put myself right in the middle of this, have had it so good for so long that we have come to believe, at least subconsciously, that it is our birthright never to be uncomfortable in any way. Now, I started to turn the air condition off this morning <laughs> to prove my point <laughs> and keep a note of how many complaints we got. Because if we are uncomfortable in any way, we feel it is our birthright to let whoever know about it. But the truth is that uh, the Lord never promised us a, a long or easy or comfortable existence. In fact, just the opposite. He says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. So we've often said the cross was an executioner's device. It was associated with pain and suffering. And to walk closely with Jesus, you can expect some pain. In fact, patience, the, the diploma for patience is received at the school of hard knocks. There's no other way around it. And, and if we come to grasp that truth and we still want patience, 
It informs how we pray and how we view every circumstance of life. I have noticed in the last few years, as hopefully I've made a little progress in sanctification since I became your pastor, that my prayer life has changed significantly. When I first started pastoring, someone called me and said, you know, so-and-so is at the hospital, will you come? I would rush to the side of the bed and plead with God to remove all pain and discomfort from this person. I thought that was my duty as the pastor. Pain is bad, let's pray that the pain goes away. The suffering's bad, let's, and I'm not diminishing that. Listen, no one's a worse patient than me. No one likes pain less than me. I pray that the Lord would take it away as you do. But what I've come to understand after having some problems of my own, watching many of you go through problems, is that it is through that pain and suffering that the Lord is sanctifying us. He's making us to trust less in ourselves and more in Him. And so when someone calls and says, we come to the hospital, I pray differently than I used to. My prayers usually go something like this. Lord, we love this brother or sister, and we don't want to see them suffer. But we know your promises are true, that when various kinds of trials come into our life, to count it all joy, because you're going to use this for your glory, and you're going to sanctify our brother. And so, Lord, whatever is in your plan, will you bring about good and glory for yourself through this process of sanctification. Now, you're going to be slower to call me to come to your hospital bed, I suspect, <laughs> after knowing that. But it's, it's how I pray and how I plan to continue to pray in, in the future. Because over time we see that it is through those difficulties that the Lord is, is polishing us and he's, he's separating us from our dependence upon self and health and, and pleasure. And not only does it inform how we pray, but it changes how we watch the news, quite frankly. How we view every circumstance of life. We do a lot less hand-wringing and a lot more praise-the-lording when we understand that difficulties bring about sanctification. That it is through infirmities, not by the absence of them, that God makes us and conforms us into His image. And it reminds us of, of the old saying that's absolutely true, there is no crown without the cross. See, Paul says in, in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for all of eternity, all of creation will praise the majesty and glory of Christ. But before that, before Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, He condescended, He emptied Himself, Paul says, and He took on human flesh, and He was born into a humble home, and He lived a perfect life, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, and then He died a very painful death in our place. There is no crown without the cross. And friends, that's true of Jesus. Jesus says the servant's not better than his master. Paul says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. <laughs> we don't have a birthright to a long and easy life. 
what we have is adoption into the family of God. What we have is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And what we have is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And all of those things equip us to endure. One of the great themes of the New Testament is endurance. In fact, if I understand the New Testament correctly, patience and endurance are interchangeable. We're told as believers to lay aside every encumbrance, every weight of sin that entangles us, that we may run with patience, some of your Bibles say, and some of your translations say, with endurance, it means the same thing. And when Peter, who was there that day, wrote one of his epistles, he said to the first century church that was just beginning to suffer a little bit, he said, it may be for a little while that we're called upon to suffer. And then I put in mind of what the Apostle Paul said about his own personal suffering. He said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glories that are to come. And so, friends, you may be right now in the middle of some suffering. And maybe you've called out to God, Lord, remove this out of my life. That's a natural thing to do. None of us like pain or suffering. But to that prayer, could you add, Lord, help me to see how you're sanctifying me through this suffering. Would you use this affliction to cause me to be more patient so that I might endure so that I may spend eternity with you. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, even as I speak them, the words almost stop in my throat because I hate suffering. I hate pain. I hate discomfort of any kind. I'm soft because of an easy life. And yet, Lord, we know that is not promised to us. In fact, uh, the closer we walk to Jesus, the more uncomfortable and warmer the temperature seems to be. We are not better than our master. He suffered. He was afflicted. He was despised. Father, help us to take up our cross every day and follow you. And Father, if that brings about uh, pain, either physical or emotional or both, rather than wanting a a way out, Lord, would we see that you're using that to sanctify us and you're using it ultimately to bring glory to yourself. And so, Lord, would you bring yourself glory from any suffering that we're called upon to endure in days ahead? Father, we know that any suffering in this world is temporary because this world is not our home. We're passing through. Help us to run with patience and endurance the race of life that is set before us. And when we do, Father, and then we stand before your presence, we'll give you thanks and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.